Hi, everybody. Welcome to Digging Deeper, a podcast of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. I'm Stephen Hunter, the preacher at the Glendale Road Church of Christ, and welcome. So today's episode is going to play off of our episode from last Wednesday. Uh, Last Wednesday, we spoke about the earliest translations of the Bible, but today we're going to talk about the English Bible. So when you consider the Bible in English, you have to begin in England. Christianity's arrival in England is alleged to have occurred in the first century, but we see it attested to by the year A.D. 200. According to tradition, Aristobulus was sent by the church at Tyre to Britain in A.D. 37. And in Wales, there's a town named after him. So later writers in Christianity, such as Eusebius and Hippolytus, they attribute to him as being the first bishop in Britain. The first, British, uh, excuse me, the first British martyr was a fellow by the name of Alban, who those over there call St. Alban, uh, but he was martyred in AD 304. We also see later in AD 313, three bishops from London, York, and possibly Lincoln attended a conference in France. So that's a little bit of background information. I don't want to go too much into that history, but it is a little pertinent. Now, ever since AD 400, the Latin Bible was the standard. It's often referred to as the Latin Vulgate. But translations into local local vernacular began to emerge. Now, English derives from a West Germanic and Indo-European language family. And among the earliest English manuscript is the Anglo-Saxon Proto-English that dates to A.D. 995. So as a matter of consistency with the different translations, English translations, uh, John 3.16 will be the passage uh, that I'm going to use. So according to the manuscript from A.D. 995, uh, here's how it would have read, and I may not get the pronunciation exactly right, but you'll see just how similar and different it was, English was way back then. John 3.16 from 995. God lufida midden erd that he seed his on an synodin suna dat non neforit de on hangeli ak habidat echilif. Now, if there are people out there that speak medieval English, they will tell me if I butchered that or was pretty close or accurate. I don't know. But that's what English sounded like in AD 995. We fast forward a few hundred years to the 14th century. An Oxford scholar, John Wycliffe, he produced the first English manuscripts of Scripture. Now, he opposed the Roman church because he believed that it was contrary to Scripture. So the Bible in English, for the common man to read, became a goal of his. John 3.16, in the 14th century, read like this, For God lua so the world, that he gaf his un begutten soon, that Echman that believeth in him perish not, but how everlasting lieth. Again, a 14th century English scholar can tell if I butchered that or if I was dead on. But it, it sounds more German than what you hear in AD 
1795. So, okay. John Wycliffe's English manuscripts were produced from the Latin Bible because that was the only source that he had available. Wycliffe angered the Pope of Rome so much that 44 years after Wycliffe died, the Pope had his remains dug up, his bones crushed, and scattered in a river. Talk about making a statement, right? Well, anyway, one of Wycliffe's followers, John Hus, continued his mission and advocated that people should be able to read the Bible in their language, and he opposed the tyranny of the Roman church as well. Well, for those efforts, Hus was burned at the stake, and Wycliffe's manuscripts were used as kindling for the fire. The year that Hus was martyred was in the year 1415, and his last words were this, In a hundred years, God will raise up a man whose call for, calls for reform cannot be suppressed. Now, what's interesting about that prophecy, if you will, in the year 1517, just 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg in Germany, and that's considered the uh, spark that began the Reformation. So, some of you may not be altogether clear about some of this history, but that's okay. Um, just a history of the English Bible, so we have to cover some of these, uh, some of these characters and events that happened. So, if I don't explain things, I apologize for that. I'm assuming that you may have a little bit of familiarity, and if not, there's a lot of detail that we could go into, but there's no sense in getting as lost as last year's Easter egg. Well, after Martin Luther, there are many others that would follow in this endeavor. Now, Luther was German, so he produced a German copy of scriptures. I'm not sure if he was able to do the entire Bible, but he did a great portion of the Bible in German. But many others would follow in the endeavor of Wycliffe and Hus and even Luther, but William Tyndale was the first to print the New Testament in English. And at the time, this was forbidden. So he took his work to Cologne, and he wanted to have it printed there, but his intention was discovered, and the printing was halted while he fled. Around 1526, he had 3,000 copies produced in Worms. Now, Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake in October of 1536, and only three copies of his Bible exist today. One of his disciples, Miles Coverdale, continued his work translating the Old Testament and producing the first complete Bible in English in 1535. It's called the Coverdale Bible. So you see that this effort at translating scripture into the common vernacular of the people was something that the Roman church opposed. It's kind of like how what we do with our own scriptures for example, there are many who claim that the King James Bible was given by God above, and that's the only inspired text. So I think the Roman Church probably believed the same thing about the Latin Vulgate, and that's why they clung to it. Plus, at the time, the only people who typically spoke Latin were scholars or priests or aristocracy. So it was a language that was unavailable to the common person, and so if the common person cannot read scripture in their own language, they're reliant upon leaders to guide them. In 1539, the Church of England 
produced the Great Bible. It was an English translation that they authorized, but just a few years later in 1560, a more significant English translation would follow, and that's called the Geneva Bible. Now, here's what's real neat about the Geneva Bible, because it, it, it had a lot of first. It was the first Bible to add numbered verses and chapters for quick reference. Also, when Shakespeare quoted from the Bible, he quoted from the Geneva Bible. And for a hundred years, this translation, the Geneva Bible, was the only standard version. And it retained over 90% of Tyndale's translation. And it was a significant source for the King James Bible, which was produced in 1611. Another interesting tidbit, the Geneva Bible was the first English translation taken to America by the Puritans and Pilgrims. But when the King James Bible was published, the actual copies were so large that they were chained to pulpits throughout the churches in England. But it would be decades before the King James surpassed the Geneva Bible. So the King James of 1611, here's how the English read then. For God so loathed the world that he got his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you're seeing how it's the language is evolving and it's sort of catching up to what our modern English is. Now here's a note of interest. It doesn't have anything to do with the English Bible, but it has to do with America. The first Bible printed in America was in the native Algonquin language by John Eliot in 1663. So a Bible was produced for Native Americans, those who spoke the Algonquin language. Okay, moving on. In 1833, Noah Webster, after whom Webster's Dictionary is named, he translated the Bible, the King James, into more modern vernacular, that is, the language that people spoke at that time. Now, the language difference between the 17th and the 19th centuries were quite different. I've read a lot of information uh, and handwritten material from the 19th century, and it's... it's uh, vastly different from the 17th century. But even at that time when Noah Webster updated the language of the Bible, many were so loyal to the King James version that they refused Webster's version. You get to the 1880s, England produces the revised version to replace the King James. Because obviously by this time, many, many more manuscripts have been discovered and they were a lot older than the copies from which the King James was translated. Until this time, here's what's interesting. The Bible had 88 books, but it was in the 1880s that those books that we call the Apocrypha were removed, which I found to be an interesting tidbit of information. I'd like to dive deeper into why they were removed and why they even existed. So for the longest time, I was under the impression that Martin Luther uh, removed the Apocrypha from Scripture. Um, but what I've since learned is that he regarded it as lower than Scripture, but yet still Scripture. So all these different versions are coming. The King James, the Revised Version, but all of those are coming out of England. So guess what? In 1901, we Americans produced the American Standard Version in response to the Revised Version. Now, this was the standard until 1971 when the New American Standard was printed. The New 
American Standard, was considered the best word-for-word -word translation of the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek scriptures into English that had ever been produced. But that same year, the first paraphrase of the Bible was created, which is called the Living Bible. Now, the American Standard, New King James, King James, um, New Revised Standard, the Revised Standard, and some others, they follow what's called formal equivalency. That's the translation philosophy. And what that is, it's the philosophy of translating word for word as close as possible to the original. So when you have the paraphrase that comes out, such as the Living Bible and the Message, uh, that's a new translation philosophy. Well, a couple of years after that, 1973, critics of the literal translation wanted something they believe would better flow in English. So in 1973, the NIV was produced, New International Version. That is based off of a philosophy called dynamic equivalence, whereas you translate the ideas into contemporary language. Because there are some figures of speech and uh, innuendos and such things from those cultures that when they're translated literally, it could be a little bit confusing um, for, for modern readers. So when the NIV was being translated, wherever there were poetic or archaic sounding ideas, dynamic equivalence, that translating philosophy, puts it into modern parlance for the reader's sake. So this new translation philosophy would make it so that a junior high student could read and understand what the Bible was saying. And actually, when I was in junior high and high school, I used an NIV because I could understand it a lot better than the King James Version, even though I grew up memorizing scripture from the King James Version. The sad thing is, I've read so many different versions that whenever I quote a verse, I usually mash them all together. Well, we get on ahead, and the New King James was created in 1982 to update the wording for King James Loyalists. In 2002, an attempt was made to synthesize the NIV and the New American Standard. So you've got the NIV's re readability and the New American Standard's precision, and that gave us what is called the English Standard Version, which somewhat derived from the New Revised Standard Version. So that's a little bit of the history of the English Bible. Uh, hopefully that was informative to you. What I plan to do for the next episode, uh, Lord willing, is to take a few challenging passages and explain how or the various ways that they could possibly be translated. And then we'll look at how they actually are. So I hope you have a great rest of your week. God bless you and come see us.